I'm Lone Candle. I've investigated the self-harm of different drugs and determined that the self-harm isn't so great to ban the drugs I looked at. At least when only considering self-harm, I concluded that we should legalize drugs as dangerous as heroin and let freedom reign. But what about harm to others? Is the harm to others great enough to justify banning? The drug-caused harms to others can be split into a few categories. Harm to others that the drug induces a user to directly commit. Harm done by impairment while combining the drug with use of machinery like a vehicle. Crime and violence done to obtain more of a drug one is addicted to. Second-hand drug use. Harm to family by the negative effects of drug use. And the use of societal resources. I'm attempting to consider harm to others of the drug itself, not harm resulting from the combination of drug use and the drug being illegal. I want to understand the harms to others that will occur whether or not the drug is legal. A UK Lancet study had a collection of experts score the harm of particular drugs on people other than the user, so the external harm of using a drug. The order for most harm to least is alcohol at 46, heroin at 21, crack cocaine at 17, tobacco at 9, cannabis at 8, cocaine at about 7, meth at about 2, ecstasy at about 1, and mushrooms at about 0. Unfortunately, this is the total harm, not harm per user, so the score is skewed toward drugs that are used more. But nevertheless, it shows how incredibly harmful alcohol is to non-users, even when you look not just at total numbers biased by number of users, alcohol is clearly one of the most dangerous drugs to non-users. My ranking of harm to others of the drug itself, not harms resulting from illegality and not based on the amount of people who use the drug, are as follows. Alcohol, tobacco, methacocaine, heroin, cannabis, ecstasy, then magic mushrooms. I'm prioritizing the harms of drug-induced violence, drug impairment, and secondhand use because they are more direct results of drug use, while the others are more second order. The scientific evidence for alcohol causing violence is stronger than other drugs. It is the drug that is most consistently and seriously connected to violence. Under the influence of alcohol, people's prefrontal cortexes don't function as well, reducing their ability to regulate behavior. This causes them to make bad decisions and react emotionally while also not considering the consequences of their actions. In the United States, alcohol factors into 40% of violent crimes, including 15% of robberies, 37% of sexual assaults, and 27% of aggravated assaults. Two-thirds of spouse or partner violence is perpetrated by someone thought to have been drinking, and 40% of convicted murderers used alcohol before or during the crime. Each year, about 3 million violent crimes are committed by perpetrators perceived to have been drinking. According to survey data, each year in the United States, as a result of someone else's drinking, one in five adults experience harm, including threats, harassment, property damage, vandalism, physical aggression, driving-related harms, financial problems, and family problems. The most common harm was threats or harassment at 16% of survey respondents experiencing this. Studies looking at the harms of drinking around the world find that people experience harm from the drinking of both strangers and people they know 
Other harms that have been studied and documented are noise, spousal abuse, child neglect, absenteeism in the workplace, coworker problems, littering, work-related accidents, physical assault, sexual assault, and fetal alcohol exposure. A 2010 study found that in a given year, 367 Australians die due to someone else's drinking, and 13,660 are hospitalized. 19,443 substantiated child protection cases involved drinking, as did 24,581 assaults on family members and 44,852 assaults. The study says 73% of adults experienced an adverse effect from another's drinking. In the UK in 2014, 40% of domestic violence cases involved alcohol, as did 50% of child protection cases. 6,000 children a year are born with fetal alcohol syndrome. There was 30 to 55 billion pounds of economic cost. Alcohol increases the chance of a fatal traffic accident by almost 14 times. Marijuana only does this by two times. In the United States, alcohol-impaired driving deaths are over 10,000 a year. To sum that up, the external damage of alcohol is humongous. A potentially huge, but hard to quantify, benefit of alcohol on society are the social and economic benefits that alcohol provides as a social lubricant. How many friendships, marriages, ideas, businesses, and inventions were made because of people drinking in a bar? Would these have been created anyways, or different ones of equivalent value? Probably not. I don't know how to add up the value here, but the potential is large enough to be worth mentioning. The main external harm from tobacco is secondhand smoke. According to the CDC, Secondhand smoke causes 41,000 deaths a year in the United States. 7,333 of these are from lung cancer, and 33,951 are from heart disease. Secondhand smoke causes 1.2 million yearly worldwide deaths, and 11,000 in the UK. Matches and cigarette butts can cause fires. Worldwide, it's possible that half of all fires are started by cigarettes, causing 2,500 deaths. Smoking while pregnant can hurt the fetus. Secondhand smoke is a particular problem because this is a drug invading someone else's body and brain against their will. And because smoke is a gas, it is very hard to control. Even if smokers are careful, they will inadvertently fill someone else's lung and mind with their drugs. This is even a problem with smoking outside. Air naturally wants to equalize itself, meaning two bodies of air of different temperature create air movements to balance each other. Houses, apartments, and other buildings are often different temperatures than outside, so there is usually movement of air from the outside into buildings. The cancer-causing chemicals of tobacco smoke are so small that no filter can stop them from entering a building or efficiently remove them from the air. Thus, even when someone is smoking outside, their cancer-causing agents will enter nearby dwellings and invade people's bodies and minds in their own goddamn living rooms. Smoke doesn't leave areas easily and soaks into furniture. So, this dweller will have to breathe poison for hours or days, and every time they sit on their couch, more dangerous chemicals will puff out of the furniture, poisoning them further. This isn't hypothetical for me. I have lived in two different places where cigarette smoke regularly entered my dwelling. Two! Either I got very unlucky, or this isn't that rare of an issue. We're not talking about choosing to go to a bar or party knowing the risks. But just trying to eat, live, and sleep in my own fucking apartment. And houses aren't immune to this. 
If a neighbor smokes in his backyard and the wind blows it near an AC unit, the filters won't filter out the cancer-causing chemicals and your neighbor could easily be poisoning you. This will be a problem with marijuana too. Its negative effects are much milder than cigarettes, but forcing someone to get high against their will is a form of assault. I'm sympathetic toward arguments that all gas drugs, all drugs that produce harmful gases that float away into the air, should be completely banned. Gases are too hard to control for a sufficient number of smokers to avoid assaulting non-smokers. And too many smokers just won't care. In one of my experiences, I explained to the individuals that their smoke was entering my apartment, filling it with smoke, and they told me I'm a liar. They said I was making it up. They didn't give two shits about their assault on my health. Even a small percentage of smokers acting this way will ruin the freedom to smoke for everyone. There's no halfway regulation that can stop this from happening. Either out of intentionality, carelessness, or honest accident, too many smokers will harm others even in their own places of residence. There's a strong argument that all gas-based drugs should be banned due to their external harms on others. That is, if we don't take into account the harms of the bans themselves. While both meth and cocaine can induce violence, the occurrence is rare and the evidence for either drug being the main cause is weak. It's not like most people who take these drugs suddenly go out and attack people. Cocaine intake has been associated with an increased risk of violence. It has been found that domestic assault perpetrators often use cocaine. Cocaine can cause paranoia, which can increase the chance of violence. Cocaine can facilitate violence among psychopaths. Cocaine induces antisocial behavior and lowers concern for others. While high, the user's egotistical and self-interested behavior can spiral upwards. The following remorse can lead them to use again to lessen such feelings. Cocaine's aggression and risk-taking is amplified with crack. It can be used to psych people up for violence by lowering regret. Gangs use it for this. It can make one feel invincible, helping one in dangerous or hostile environments. Meth is a stimulant like cocaine, and like cocaine can induce erratic, aggressive, or violent behavior. Withdrawal can cause disinhibition, agitation, paranoia, and delusions, and these can lead to hostility and violence. Meth can induce thrill-seeking, and committing crimes can enhance people's thrills. Meth-induced paranoia is a key cause of meth-related violence. Meth may also synergize with aggressive tendencies to make violence more likely. This is more likely to happen than meth single-handedly causing violence. Additionally, when someone is addicted, they may make poor choices as their life spirals downward. Meth-induced psychosis has a clear link of meth facilitating violence as it causes paranoia. Meth is most likely to lead to violence with higher doses in long-term use. It's not clear to what extent meth causes violence. People more likely to act violently are also more likely to take illegal drugs, and the scientific literature has had trouble controlling for this. Did a drug cause someone to act violently? Or was this just the type of person who wants a stimulating illegal drug and is prone to violence? That said, evidence does suggest meth increases the chance of violence, so it is a harm to others that meth creates. It just isn't nearly as large as many imagine because most meth users aren't violent. If one is fatigued, low doses of meth can actually improve driving, but otherwise it impairs driving. For both meth and cocaine, the circumstances, situation, nature of the drug user, and dose matter greatly for whether these drugs facilitate violence. From the studies I've looked at, 
the link of alcohol to violence is much more powerful than meth or cocaine. However, because these substances are addicting, the desire for more of the drug can cause people to commit crimes and violence in order to obtain the funds for their drug habit. It's difficult to separate this from the fact that the drugs are illegal. Alcohol is in the same bucket of addiction as cocaine and meth. So, the need to illegally obtain funds to keep the drug habit should be about the same. A lot of crime has to do with needing to deal with illegal actors to obtain the drug. And this isn't an external harm of the drug, but a harm of making the drug illegal. And again, the type of person who is willing to do an illegal drug may be more likely to steal in the first place. Heroin withdrawal really hurts, and heroin is addictive. To avoid withdrawal and feed their desire, heroin users may become dangerous as they try to gain the funds to purchase more heroin. Studying heroin users reveals that many were living antisocial lives involving crime before they started heroin, so it's difficult to say how much crime is actually caused by heroin. Heroin is well known to be dangerous and addictive, so the type of person who will start an illegal and dangerous drug is the type of person often prone to illegal activity. Nevertheless, some amount of crime is caused by heroin addicts trying to fund their drug habit. Studies on opiates and violence don't show a connection of opiates directly causing violence through how it affects the brain. Aggression by ecstasy users is really rare, and when they are violent, it's almost always due to other drugs. The drug doesn't cause people to commit crimes, and the economic cost is limited to treating injuries. Ecstasy impairs some aspects of driving, but improves other aspects. Ecstasy releases serotonin, causing empathy and openness. So, it isn't a drug that causes people to be violent. The evidence on THC is that, overall, it decreases violence. Different studies show marijuana not making users more aggressive or crime-prone. Cannabis may have some side effects that can facilitate violence. Cannabis can cause psychosis, cognitive deficits, and withdrawal symptoms, all of which can make violence more likely. Driving under the influence of cannabis increases the chance of a wreck. The external harms from magic mushrooms are minimal. There are two major problems with most studies linking illegal drugs to violence. One is that because these drugs are illegal, people who take them may be mixed up in all sorts of stuff related to the illegality of the drug. Furthermore, the people more willing to take an illegal drug may, on average, be more likely to commit violence. Alcohol is a more pure case because it is legal and socially accepted. The second major problem is the study participants are often people in prison or seeking drug abuse help. These are a minority of drug users and a minority that have issues. The more general population of drug users will be less likely to have violent behaviors than the ones needing rehab or the ones in prison. The main point I want to make is that when it comes to harm to others, alcohol and smoking tobacco are the worst among the drugs I'm looking at. The extent that alcohol causes violence and destructive behavior is worse than the fear played up around meth and cocaine. The impairment of driving and the way it makes one think they are not impaired makes alcohol a top killer for driving under the influence. The addictive nature of alcohol makes it as likely as any other drug to induce reckless behavior to maintain the addiction. 
and what it does to a person can ruin social relationships like other drugs. Alcohol is the most harmful drug for non-users. That said, smoking tobacco gives alcohol a run for its money. The mass death that secondhand smoke visits upon non-users is far worse than the small amount of meth and cocaine users who act dangerously due to paranoia, addiction, or other causes. So, if one argues that other drugs should be illegal primarily because of their harms to other people, then they must also be for banning tobacco and alcohol. At the very least, they need a difficult, dubious, and complex argument to explain why for the sake of external harm, we should ban drugs that are less harmful to others, while maintaining the legality of drugs with more external harm. I'm sympathetic to an argument for banning many of these drugs based on external harm, including smoking tobacco and alcohol, with a narrow focus on the external harms of tobacco and alcohol, the tens of thousands of deaths create a clear argument for banning these substances. A main con against such an argument is freedom. Freedom is extremely valuable and often comes at a cost of both danger to ourselves and others. If we're really going to ban actions because they might, in some circumstances, hurt someone else, that will lead to a drastic restriction on our liberty. Of course, some actions are too dangerous to others to allow, but most people drink alcohol without killing anyone. Should we really ban the enjoyment of millions because a minority will get someone killed? If the damage to others is high enough compared to the benefits, freedom and otherwise, then yes, owning nuclear weapons or anti-air rockets isn't legal because the consequences would be devastating. Are the considerable external damages of tobacco and alcohol bad enough to ban the substances. Do they meet the standard? What if we apply this standard to other activities? Boating is recreational. People don't need to have fun on a boat. Yet, boating includes a risk of harming others. Sports contain a plethora of injuries. Brain injuries from football take decades off people's lives. However, these aren't great examples because injuries from sports and boating are to other sportsmen and boaters meaning to people also choosing to take the risks of the activity. What about violent video games? It's a recreational activity that may lead to violence. The link between violent video games and violence has been studied heavily. It has been clearly shown that such games increase people's aggression and make them less likely to help people shortly after playing. Longer-term studies sometimes find a link between violent video games and aggression. However, the effects are quite small, and it's not clear that video games have ever been a key factor in killing another human. It, is it plausible that someone somewhere may have been pushed over the edge into lethal aggression because of experience playing video games? Yes, but the average yearly numbers likely range around zero. This is nothing compared to the death and harm caused by alcohol. TV and movies are similar to video games. The science clearly shows a link between watching violent entertainment and more aggressive behavior. But, yearly, how many people are killed that wouldn't have been if not for violent entertainment? The science doesn't tell us that. It very well may be zero, but whatever the number, it's far lower than those killed by alcohol and smoking tobacco. Over half a million people die a year from air pollution caused by coal. In the United States, this number is about 13,000. This is external damage done to others, but isn't easily comparable to alcohol and tobacco. The drugs are largely recreational, and if they are needed medically, 
they could be banned for recreation but allowed with a prescription. Burning coal, on the other hand, is done to produce needed energy for society. Without electricity, the modern economy, hell, the modern world, would collapse. Back when coal was a cheap energy source, replacing it with something less deadly would be quite costly. Not just to those in the coal industry, but for all those who consume electricity. If you buy arguments for banning coal, then this worsens the case for keeping alcohol and smoking tobacco legal. Coal kills less or about the same number of Americans a year, but is a part of our energy infrastructure. If we should ban coal for its harm to others, then it's difficult to argue that we shouldn't ban alcohol for the same reason. 32,000 to 42,000 Americans die each year from car crashes. Driving is extremely deadly. 5,000 pedestrians are killed by cars each year, and another 10,000 die from air pollution caused by vehicle emissions. Those are people dying who didn't even choose to take part in driving. Like coal, though, this isn't a good comparison to alcohol because driving is necessary both for our liberty of movement and for our modern economy. Banning most driving doesn't simply hurt people involved in the car industry, but shuts down how we get to work, the store, our friends, our family, and any other place one needs to go. The cost of attempting to build countrywide transportation that would replace the motor vehicle is daunting, and anything on a rail or track would greatly limit freedom of movement compared to a car. The benefits of driving are much greater and more fundamental than alcohol and tobacco, so it makes sense to accept more deaths in exchange for allowing the activity. A relatively recreational activity that harms and kills other people is owning man's best friend. In the United States, Ruffies bite over 4 million people a year, resulting in 6,000 to 13,000 hospitalizations, and over 30 deaths a year. 72% of bite fatalities are from family roughies, so this isn't just an issue of guard, police, or gang animals getting out of control. By allowing such pets to be legal, we are ensuring that dozens of people will be killed. Is the value of your ability to own a roughie greater than my life and safety? Now, even here, the comparison to alcohol and tobacco is weak. Each life matters, and more lives matter more than less lives. Every year, alcohol and tobacco kill tens of thousands more people than roughies. One could reasonably argue that the small death toll from bites doesn't justify a complete ban, while the external deaths of drinking alcohol and smoking tobacco are so high that they should be banned. If I could find a handful of comparable examples to alcohol and smoking tobacco that caused roughly equal or greater external harm, this would do two things. One, it would intuitively make us see that banning these drugs doesn't make sense when similar activities also cause harm and we think they should be legal. Two, there would be a net freedom cost. If alcohol's external damages are enough to ban something, and many other activities also meet that standard, then such a standard would ban all sorts of things many people get enjoyment from, and that net freedom hit would be devastating. However, there doesn't seem to be a net freedom hit. All these comparisons are highly problematic for one reason or another. It seems that alcohol and smoking tobacco are unique in recreational activities we keep legal despite that they harm and kill tens of thousands of people every year. This makes me highly sympathetic toward banning alcohol and smoking tobacco, at least with a narrow focus on external harms. And if these should be illegal, 
then there's a case for banning other externally harmful drugs like meth and cocaine. I went into this piece expecting to say that of course alcohol should be legal on grounds of liberty, but the unique damages of alcohol and smoking tobacco make me think otherwise. If external harm was the only factor, then maybe we should ban alcohol and reinstate prohibition. However, we've learned from our last alcohol prohibition, as well as from the prohibition of other substances, that prohibition doesn't work well, and it produces a plethora of harms. To understand why I'm for maintaining the legal status of alcohol and why I'm for the legalization of all the drugs I'm discussing, see Part 3 on the costs and benefits of banning drugs. Let me add a footnote on banning versus mitigation and personal responsibility. We can categorize how to deal with activities that cause external harms in two ways. One is banning. The other is mitigation and personal responsibility. Mitigation is efforts to reduce the harm of an activity without banning it. And personal responsibility refers to mitigation techniques that allow civil and criminal penalties for the harm done. The advantage of these lighter efforts is we maintain the freedom of doing the activity. However, some harms we just can't mitigate enough, and the only real option is a ban. I don't care what safeguards we implement on individuals owning nukes or anti-air missiles. If even one was used improperly or stolen by someone with ill intent, the consequences would be devastating. So, these weapons need to be illegal. We've been dealing with the downsides of alcohol since near the beginning of civilization. We clearly aren't going to solve them with mitigation and personal responsibility. So, banning has the potential to reduce external harm above that of mitigation. The harms of smoking tobacco, too, are difficult to mitigate because it's a gas and because too many people will be rude or careless no matter the legal and social emphasis we put on the harms of secondhand smoke. So, banning has potential to reduce the external harms far above mitigation efforts. Such bans may stop you from doing something that you personally will always do responsibly. But, if you're allowed to do it, so is the irresponsible person. And the irresponsible person will get others killed. I'm Lone Candle. Like me? Comment me? Love me. Mwah, 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 mwah.